Welcome to the Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech Podcast. On this show, we focus on how the real estate industry, the world's single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, can leverage climate tech to become part of the sustainability solution. I'm your host, Greg Smithies. I'm a partner on the climate tech team at Fifth Wall, the largest and most active venture investor in technology for the real estate industry. In this podcast, we'll be joined by people on the front lines, the people inventing, investing in, and deploying the climate tech we'll need to make our homes, offices, and communities more efficient, more sustainable, and ever closer to carbon zero. Welcome everybody to another episode of Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech. And today we have the fantastic opportunity to talk to Deborah Stamm, who's a principal at Emerald Initiative about the incredible uh, carbon zero building that they've built called The Catalyst. Um, and it's not very often that we actually get to talk to someone as a practitioner in the development world who's really gone deep and has something to show for it being a building that is uh, breaking records. Um, so very excited to have a discussion here. Um, Deborah, before we, we jump in and actually talk about the building itself, I um, would love to hear a little bit more about Emerald Initiative. Uh, what is it and uh, how do you fit into the equation here? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I didn't realize this was called Tactical Tool Belt. So I'm even more honored to be a part of this conversation today. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so Emerald Initiative is a real estate development and management firm. We're a sister company to McKinstry, which is a 60-year-old MEPDF design build and energy services firm based in the Northwest. We have offices all over the country, and, and we're really the sister company development arm of, of McKinstry. And so as a bunch of energy nerds, we're very focused on building better buildings and particularly building much more energy efficient buildings. Although we also, when we think about better buildings, we also think a lot about human health and, you know, biophilic buildings. And we also think a lot about building buildings that are good for human health and efficient and also affordable. Um, you know, we also think of, you know, when we think about ourselves as being mission oriented, we also think a lot about what goes in in our buildings. And so a lot of the magic of Catalyst is in the building itself. And a lot of it is in the community that we curated and created there and that's helping to continue inventing better buildings and better energy grid into the future. So that's that's a little bit about Emerald Initiative. Um, you know, my own story is kind of interesting in its path and journey that has touched zero energy buildings at a few points. So I started my career at a general contractor at DPR Construction, and we built one of the first ever, ended up being the second ever in the U.S. zero energy building, um, David and Lucille Packard Foundation in Los Altos. And it was a beautiful, amazing building. Yeah, I know this building. It's It's beautiful. It's pretty special and, and actually in many ways has a lot of similarities to Catalyst, both, you know, both in terms of some of the system types, um, as well as, you know, use of, uh, you know, a lot of structural wood, mass timber. But, you know, we, when we finished that building, I think we finished it in 2012, it, you know, it was not replicable. The, the price tag on that building you couldn't go build a bunch more of those. And I really felt like in order to make a difference in the industry, in order to push forward, you know, I needed to have a much better understanding of how sort of typical real estate development works. So I've worked for a variety of great real estate developers, including Boston Properties and mostly recently Trammell Crow. I also went to Stanford um, for business school in between um, and sort of swung to the other side of the pendulum in terms of, you know, sort of more traditional real estate development. And so Emerald Initiative really 
provided this opportunity to marry those two things. Like how do you build zero energy and how do you build it in a way that gets the kind of market returns that investors need? Um, and so that's, that's really what we're trying to pursue now and you know what we did at Catalyst Building. Fantastic. So maybe before we get into just uh, how cool the Catalyst Building is and, and how you did that, maybe just level set for the audience. What is Catalyst? Where is it? What type of building is it? Uh, all of that stuff. Yeah. So the Catalyst building is about 160,000 square foot academic and office building. It's in Spokane, Washington, which is the second largest city in Washington. It's in Eastern Washington. So um, for those of you who have experienced in Seattle, other side of the state, it's much drier, much, uh, much more sort of a mountain West kind of a climate. Um, and it's part of a, a neighborhood development that we call South Landing. So it includes the Catalyst building. It includes um, a building next door called the Morris Center and a couple other sites on which we intend to develop future buildings. And it's also been really fun to see it's, you know, really, as the name suggests, Catalyst, it's catalyzed other development in the area as well. It's sort of an underdeveloped area previously. And it's uh, it's within a neighbor, a larger neighborhood called the University District which houses, you know, several institutions, University of Washington, Gonzaga, WSU, Eastern Washington University, um, as well as a few others. So it's kind of a, an interesting little academic node within the city. Yeah, fa- fantastic. And um, for those who, who Google around about it, the, the Catalyst in Spokane is probably the easiest way just to Google and find it. Um, be- beautiful building. Um, uh yeah, I, I'm excited to visit it as soon as uh, COVID, COVID uh, gets out of the way here and we can return to our normal lives. Um, but okay, so what we're here to really talk about is why is this building actually so cool, right? Why, why are you grabbing headlines around this um, and, you know, multiple case studies and, and things like that? What, why, is, why should people care about the Catalyst, right? Yeah, so it's it's a zero energy, zero carbon mass timber and fully mass timber. A lot of mass timber buildings are still sort of hybrid buildings, but this is one of the largest and tallest ever, you know, fully mass timber buildings. Um, and and we built it really at zero cost premium. And so that that's what we find to be so special about it is we really believe it's a replicable model. Wait, wait. So I, I think you should you should say that again because that is nuts. Everybody thinks that if you build a clean building, it's going to be super expensive. That there are these crazy sort of capex trade offs and things like that. But but say that again. There there's no green premium here. So yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's. You're right. Trade offs is a good word. There are decisions and trade offs and choices you need to make in the design process to drive to zero carbon, zero cost premium. But if you use the right set of strategies and you're creative and think about your particular site and your particular context, we really do believe that you, and, and we've proven with this building, right, that you don't have to pay a big cost premium in order to build the right way. And that's changed a lot, too, in the last decade. Yeah, may, maybe juxtapose that against the, the the previous building in Los Altos that that you were describing. You know, with without hard numbers, right? How how much more expensive than average, roughly? You know, ballpark was a was a building like that. Say, when was that put up? About a decade ago, versus this where there's zero premium. How how much more expensive were they back in the day? There, there was conflating factors on that project, but you know that project was probably one and a half to two times, probably one and a half times. Um, about kind of a typical construction cost. And we're really kind of at par with a class A building construction cost 
in terms of hard and soft costs on the catalyst. That is an incredibly long way for the industry to have come in in basically a decade, right? Um, that that's a huge amount of cost to come out. So uh, I know that most of our audience right now will uh, uh, probably have their skeptical face on, right? <laughs> um, you know how. Because I, I think it is uh, pro- probably incorrectly, or hopefully we're going to show you uh, that it's incorrect, um, that people just believe that green buildings uh, have to be more expensive. So maybe let's go through some of the sort of tactics and things that you did with the catalyst um, in order to keep that cost down whilst keeping the efficiency so high. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'll start by saying there's no one silver bullet. It's There's not like one system or one strategy that does everything and that you can apply universally. So actually say the most important thing is to be really creative and to look at the context of the project you are trying to do to try to figure out how to achieve this and spend enough time up front, you know, really being creative about that and, and setting your high goals. Um, so in terms of the strategies that we actually employed, I'd say there's sort of five main buckets and I'll, I'll name them and then I can go through them in a little more detail. And the first is taking advantage of the efficiencies that you get from manufacturing. Second is kind of a contracting approach and taking a multi-prime strategy. The third is around centralizing and sharing and particularly around energy assets, um, energy infrastructure. Fourth is outcomes-based engineering and that starts to have to do a lot with some of the trade-offs um, I was mentioning. And then the fifth is around kind of how you think about the renewable side of things. So we, we spent, I would say, most of more time and energy, most of our time and energy thinking about how do we make this the most efficient building possible. You know, we ended up with something with a mid-20s EUI, which is like 75% more efficient than a baseline building might have been. That's nuts. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're really happy with that outcome, although it's still, you know, it's still being operated. So we think it's going to operate at about that EUI, but that's currently kind of a modeled number. Um, but you also have to think about the renewable side. So if you're getting to zero energy, it's, you know, you pretty much always have to do some renewable. So, you know, the the fifth piece is kind of being creative around that as well. Um, so I'll, I'll dive into those. Um, you know, I could talk about this for two hours. So Greg, feel free to interrupt (laughs) and ask questions as I go. Uh, so the first one I mentioned was really taking advantage of the efficiencies around manufacturing and approaching everything in the manufacturing mindset. I'm sure this is a thing that the folks who might be listening to this think about a lot. I imagine it's a thing that folks at Fifth Wall think about a lot. I think we can all in the industry agree that the way that construction is done right now is not terribly efficient where everything is done in the field. There's a lot, of, luckily there's a lot of like startups now, you know, or you know, growth stage kind of companies thinking about how to do this better. Um, and there's a couple ways that we applied this to our project. So one is we took a multi-prime strategy and our general contractor contractor was Katera, who obviously is trying to do a lot of things in a factory manufacturing kind of mindset. They built their factory, you know, a couple miles away from where our project was. So that drove cost efficiencies on its own, that our materials were coming from so nearby. But you know, they're using a lot of CLT. We used a fully CLT structure, as I mentioned, and CLT is uh, very conducive to a factory manufacturing mindset. You can use CNC machines. It's much easier to use robotics to do manufacturing while using wood as your basis. And then, you know, another really interesting thing we did on this project is we contracted directly with McKinstry. And then we also, so McKinstry is our sister company, as I mentioned, um, we also 
created a new company called Overcast, which the owner also contracted directly with. And Overcast is um, it's a, a new company that we formed that creates these plug-and-play sort of factory-built appliances for MEPDF systems. So right now, in like every room, in every building that you build, you have 70 people going up and down ladders, putting 70 different things. I mean, that's an exaggeration. You know, maybe there's... I, I don't think it's an exaggeration. If yeah. if you've been in the sort of final fit out phases of one of these buildings, there's, you know, way too many cooks in the kitchen here. There's the low voltage guy. There's, you know, if it's an academic building, maybe you've got some other gas piping going in there. You've got lighting, you've got high voltage. It's it's nuts, right? The the number of things that are going in there. It's That's right. The number is actually more like you might have, you know, 30 kind of sub-tier subs. And the number I, I stated about 70 people going up and down ladders, that's actually a real statistic. I think the number is actually like 72 on average in, in every room. That's a very, very inefficient way to build. So what we've done is we've said we're going to install all of those systems in a pre-manufactured appliance that we can create in a factory. And we're going to install that in one go. And then we're going to install all the systems that, you know, so those are sort of the terminal systems, the lights, the terminal HVAC units, et cetera. And then all of the systems, all the low voltage cabling, all the electrical cabling, everything that needs to go to those gets installed in what's called a spline. So you have the splines and you have these clouds and it's all pre-manufactured and it's a huge labor savings. Um, because it's a much more efficient way to build. But it's also really interesting from sort of a contracting standpoint, because particularly when you're trying to create a smart building that's sensor laden and a smart building that can help, you know, really support a zero energy smart grid, you have to have a lot of sensors in your building. And right now, how those are purchased is like through a third or fourth tier sub. So you have four le levels of markup, but also it's really inefficient because you have four levels of project managers along there who are like trying to learn what the sensor does and make sure the submittal is right. It's much more efficient to just buy that directly OEM and install it in a factory. So it's, it, it's, there's multiple types of efficiencies you can gain from this type of contracting, this type of factory manufacturing mindset. So this is one where, you know, the, the way that you approach manu factory manufacturing is going to, to depend on the type of project that you do. But this, this general concept is something we think that every owner, every developer, every user should be thinking about applying for their base building and their TI, you know, from the outset. In, in this section, could I, could I may, maybe just sort of su summarize this as... Um, in the, in the design and construction phase, obviously there are some technologies and uh, materials that are more expensive because uh, you're just going above and beyond code, right? Like you're going to use more insulation, all of those things. But where you're uh, having the trade-off is then by doing it in a prefab, uh, um, uh, prefab construction and having much more efficiencies on site, you're getting cost savings on the construction phase so that you can essentially therefore sort of take savings from the construction phase and put them into the sort of materials phase, right? Yeah, so that is that is certainly one way that we think about trade-offs for sure. Um, I, the other way that I really think about trade-offs is in what we kind of call, what we think about as outcomes-based engineering. So start with the end in mind, start with what your big goal is, and then figure out how to get there. Don't start by adding up building blocks of systems you think might be kind of interesting to use or that you typically use. And so an example of that is, you know, we want to get to a zero energy building at zero cost premium. 
So let's not start by saying what the systems are that we think we should be using. Let's start by looking at everything holistically. Let's get all the MEPDF designers in the room. Let's get the architect. Let's get the you know facade consultant. Let's get the structural. Like, let's get everybody in the room at the beginning and look at the trade-offs between systems and model the trade-offs between systems. So let's look at what actually happens when you invest an extra dollar in your facade. How much does that allow you to downsize your uh, you know, central plant system. So we did that. We did 40,000 energy models. We did an iterative energy model system essentially to really get to, you know, what is the, how do we get to the outcome we need at zero cost premium? That is a much more intensive process than you would typically be doing up front. But it allowed us to figure out that, wow, if we invest a lot in our facade, which we did, you can really downsize your base central plant system. So, you know, we have R35 and R50 walls. We have triple glazing. Our air sealing was tested at 11 times better than Washington State's already fairly stringent energy code. 11x better is, yeah, that's that's a little crazy. I, th- I think it was also actually two times better than the highest, most stringent sort of industry standard out there. Yeah, that's right. So you're just blowing away away standards left and right here. (laughs) But I mean, we're we're doing it because it's allowing us to deliver this product overall at at that, you know, really zero cost premium. And we figured that out through 40,000 energy models. So you have to really put in a lot of effort up front to figure out these trade-offs and to understand them. So when I think about trade-offs, that's that's really what I'm thinking about. It's not trade-offs so much necessarily in terms of the occupant experience or how the building operates. It's trade-offs in terms of what you're investing in. Um, another example of this would be, okay, so often you'll say we want so much glazing or we want so much daylight. We didn't think of it that way. We said we want a building that's enjoyable to be in and that's productive for the workers. Like that's actually the ultimate outcome you're, you're going after. And so when you're in a zero energy building, it's really hard to get to zero energy if you have a ton of you know, curtain wall. We have a little bit of curtain wall in the building, but we don't have floor to ceiling glazing all over this building uh, because it makes it really hard to achieve your energy goals. And so you know, what we did is we said, well, what we care about is that productivity. And so we maximized daylighting where we had glazing, we used triple pane glazing, but we also, because we were using CLT and because it's, you know, under the 85 foot threshold, that is kind of the IBC is now really what, um, what happens when you go up over that, you have to cover up a lot of your wood uh, under current code because we're below that. We had a huge amount of wood exposed. And so you are in this warm wood building and it feels kind of like office building meets ski lodge. And so even though there's maybe a little bit, I, I love my huge skier and outdoors person. So I, I, I love being in a ski lodge personally, but you're, you don't wonder like, Oh, why am I not at floor to ceiling glazing? You're wondering like, why do I feel so wonderful in this building? Um, there's also amazing views from this building. So that, that doesn't hurt either. So those are the, the things we think about. Looking at the photos of the inside of this building, and as I said, I can't wait to go and visit it. Um, it it's the most like Instagram-worthy interior of an <laughs> office building I think I've ever seen because it is. It's floor-to-ceiling, beautiful wood. Um, and there's actually a bunch of science around this um, that wood on a psychological basis just makes people feel, uh, what's the, the Danish word, heeg. It just ma- makes yeah. people feel, you know, warm and cozy and uh, lowers cortisol levels and, and all of this stuff. So the juxtaposition here is, hey, you don't need 
uh, full sides of the building to be glass if people really like w- looking at the wood, right? Um, and and I'd say it's a, that's a fantastic trade-off to make. I'm looking at a photo of it now, and it, it looks great. We agree, and thank you, and we can't wait to get you out there. We'll we'll make sure to post lots of selfies of you on our uh, <laughs> social media. Um, all right, so. Uh, the last thing I guess I wanted to mention, you know, in thinking about how you get to zero energy is the other side of the equation. We, we spent most of our effort on the how do you make the building more efficient. But if you're doing like a zero energy or zero carbon LFE kind of certification, which is what we're um, going after, and we're still in process because it's based on actual, not model performance, um, but we fully expect to achieve it. So if you're going after a rating like that, it's not just about how efficient your building is. It's also about, you know, how do you think about efficiently deploying renewables? And that's particularly challenging in Washington state. And there's many other states like this, where we have a regulatory framework that makes it really difficult to do PPAs, to, to do kind of a variety of renewable energy structures. So for us, you know, one of the things we were really lucky, we own some other assets in the area. So we were able to utilize some of those rooftops. But generally, we really thought about, you know, how do you incentivize other projects to happen? You know, not necessarily how do you deploy 100% of the capital for them to happen, although in some cases that is, you know, might be the right thing to do. But, you know, if there's just a, a tipping point that a project needs to get over in order to have the right financial return, can you provide you know, essentially that subsidy to make it happen. And we think that's a, an interesting way, particularly in an urban context, to think about the renewable side of it. And again, that's going to depend completely on, you know, what kind of an owner you are. But um, as renewables come down in price, uh, there will be more opportunities to do those sorts of things. But I think, you know, globally, what we really are more focused on is the building side of the equation. And we, we need to solve both sides of the equation, right? But I think we're going to need both small scale renewable as well as a lot of utility scale renewable sorts of things in order to get to zero by 2040 or 2050. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And there, there's an interesting uh, sort of corollary or, or something that comes out of this building is when you build a building this this efficiently um, and it's running so well and you've got all of this clean power going into it, it turns out that actually the largest power draw inside the building ends up being the tenant plug uh, plug load, right? Which is very different from most, most other buildings. But it means that actually to get this building truly to to zero, there's a bunch of sort of psychology and things that you have to work with on on humans and tenants inside the building. And tenants are humans and humans are irrational. So this is often one of the most complicated things to do. And I know it's something that many of our owners and operators uh, deal with on a daily basis with their tenants. So um, yeah, what what are you guys doing around that problem? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think generally there's going to have to be you know, more of a partnership approach and a hands-on approach between many owners and developers and their tenants to figure this out and to work together. Um, we're, we're pretty lucky in this building because many of the folks who are going to be in the building are, are really our partners. So McKinstry is going to be one of the tenants in this building. The, the larger tenant is Eastern Washington University, and they're coming with their electrical engineering, their computer science, and their um, business school programs. And, and so they really have a base of professors, of researchers, and of students who are super interested in this question. So we, we have sort of this, in the Catalyst building in particular, the sort of built-in 
concept of partnership with those groups and everybody is interested in figuring out this question. So in a lot of ways, the Catalyst Building, you know, is intended to continue to be a living laboratory where we continue testing all of this. Uh, I haven't talked a ton about the Morris Center, but that is a a building next door to the Catalyst Building. And um, Avista, who is our development partner on South Landing broadly, is going to have a big footprint in that. Avista is the, uh, the one of the largest utilities in sort of the mountain region, um, certainly in eastern Washington, but they extend throughout the Mountain West. And they've been a great partner, great development partner on this, and are going to be taking quite a bit of space um, within that building. And so they're also going to help us partner to figure out that question, right? How do you adjust operations? How do you utilize smart sensors and smart building systems, as well as the sort of softer side of um, incentives, nudges, the right kind of psychological tools in order to continue driving this. So we've got a few things in place that we're testing. We're excited to continue experimenting with that over the coming you know, years and decades. This is incredibly heartening to see how much the uh, industry has really brought down um, uh, the the cost of carbon zero buildings so much in the last roughly decade, right? To to the point where we are, where there actually isn't a premium. Now, obviously, a lot of work has has gotten into getting the buildings there, um, but very heartening to see that we're starting to see the fruits of, uh, fruits of the labor. Um, and you know, just just on this building, a couple of the stats that I think you threw out there. So you know, on on the envelope efficiency, it's it's eleven times above code. I think your your walls and ceilings uh, are two to three times above code when it comes to R values. Um, most of the building, actually, all of the building is built across laminated timber. Um, so you're using a lot of new types of technologies here, but really doing it in a way that ends up with a cost that is, uh, there's no green premium on this building, which is, which is fantastic. So, um, if people want to learn more about the Emerald Initiative or the Catalyst Building, uh, where can they find you? Uh, you could find us at emeraldinitiative.com or, uh, spokanecatalyst.com. Feel free to reach out to me as well. My name is Deborah Stam. Fantastic. Thanks for, uh, being a guest. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Thanks for listening to Fifth Wall's Tactical Tool Belt Climate Tech Podcast. For more on Fifth Wall and our efforts in climate tech, visit our website at fifthwall.com.